I want to invite you to turn your Bible to uh, Revelation. So the very last book, all the way to your right. If you have a Bible, if you have a device, you can obviously go right there. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Hear these words from, um, you think, the Apostle John. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, here's what John writes. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Take a moment of silence. Take a deep breath in. Breathe in the life of the Spirit, the words of God to you. Breathe out your cares and concerns and worries and ask God to speak to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us today. Father, we thank you that you are a good father who longs for your children to know your delight and your love, who, who longs for your mission to go out into the world and for that, that circle of delight to expand outward to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This is the vision of the book of Revelation. This is the vision of the coming city of God. So God, we want to we wanna live into that. We want to live as if that were true and real, that you speak to us that you speak over us words of life, words that, that take what feels dead, dead forms of religion, dead practices, dead gatherings, dead relationships, dead hearts, and you revive and you bring them back to life. And that is the invitation here today, that you would just breathe fresh wind into our lungs, into our bodies, that we may, like the dry bones in Ezekiel, rise from the dead and live again. So God, we trust you to do a work that we cannot do in our own strength, and we pray that you would open our eyes, wake us up, give us a vision for flourishing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk about alarm clock moments. Several years ago I read uh, an interesting book, actually one of my favorite books on uh, business and leadership I've read in some time, 
and I have a picture of the book up here. It's called Insight. And it's a book by an organizational psychologist named Tasha Yurik. And she, she consults with a lot of companies and does a lot of writing around the area of kind of uh, insight and awareness. Um, and so she does this study, thousands of surveys, about 50 in-depth qualitative interviews. And she essentially looks at the question of what is the difference between um, people who grow and change and transform uh, with, with insight. They're able to kind of take insight, and as she says, kind of quoting a Chinese proverb, uh, when the winds of change rage, some people build shelters while other people build windmills. It's a really powerful imagery. Some build shelters and they go and hide, and some build windmills. She calls these people self-awareness unicorns. They're able to take uh, insights from their life and actually build windmills that then kind of propel them forward into deeper insight and wisdom and, and transformation. It's not a Christian book, but I think there's a lot of uh, things for us to learn. But she, she specifically talks about this idea of alarm clock moments in our lives, that we all have moments where the alarm clock goes off and we're literally shaken awake. We have this opportunity to be w- woken up, to come alive. And she lists three kind of uh, alarm clock moments. There's the alarm clock moment of the everyday insight, right? Like somebody gives you feedback and you're kind of blindsided and you're like, oh, I didn't see myself that, that way. That's what she calls external awareness, right? Like we're, there's often a disconnect between how we see ourselves and how other people see us. And sometimes that, that gets punctured, that illusion gets punctured by like one of those, uh, hey, let's have a talk moments around the office. Or have you ever like received a text message that wasn't intended for you, but it's about you? Yeah, like we all laugh uncomfortably because that happens or you've sent one of those. That can be uh, one of those everyday opportunities for insight if we'll allow it not just to offend us, but to, uh, to, to be a gift to us. She talks about um, the, another category of uh, moving into new roles or new rules. So uh, getting a new job or within your new job, you get a promotion or you get a reassignment to a different team. Or uh, you get married. Wow, what a wake-up call. What an alarm clock moment on your honeymoon, uh, on the way back from your honeymoon. Like you, you thought one thing, and then there's this other thing that's happening. A new baby. Some of you are new parents. Alarm clock moment. You're w- literally uh, waking up all the time. Uh, but it, it's an opportunity to see some things about yourself. You go to college. You, you get an internship. You get a residency. You get out of your residency and into the real world, and you get a job. These are all... Uh, kind of new roles or rules that are like alarm clock moments that wake us up to reality and can be very painful. We have to learn new roles and responsibilities. The other one she talks about is earthquake moments. Earthquake moments, as implied by the word, are things that shake us, dramatic things that happen to us. And all of a sudden, an alarm clock goes off in our life. You get fired from your job, put on furlough during the pandemic. Your spouse comes home one day and says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I want a divorce. You lose, as many of us have in this season, a loved one, someone you didn't anticipate going away, a grandparents, an aunt, an uncle, a sibling. It's an alarm clock. You don't get into that program or fellowship. You fail your board exams. A child walks away, an adult child walks away from the faith, says, I hate you. I want nothing, I don't want anything to do with you, the church or for my faith. These are alarm clock moments. And, and we tend to want to avoid these moments because they're painful. But the key is, she argues in the book, and I think Jesus actually argues here in Revelation chapter three, these moments that are so painful, these wake-up calls, 
if we will receive them as a gift, they can actually be invitations to life. You are dead, but you can live again. That's, that's what a good alarm clock moment does. It wakes you up, it rouses you to reality and says don't live out of touch, but pay attention. Now, to understand this alarm clock moment, you need to understand a little bit of something about the history of the city of Sardis. So again, seven messages, prophetic messages, seven in the book of Revelation, again, symbolizes uh, not some code that needs to be cracked, but it symbolizes completeness or wholeness. In other words, these are representations of all churches in all times in all places. Sardis was located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, the city that we studied last week. It was situated at the foot of Mount Molis and in the fertile valley of the river Hermas. And it was at the crossroads of five major intersecting roads. And so it, it was kind of like, <clears throat> you think of it like Indianapolis, right? Indianapolis has been called the crossroads of America. So we're different, we're, we're within a day's drive of more major cities than any other city in the country. And that's kind of the same thing you have here with Sardis. It was the center of, at this kind of intersection of trade and commercial activity. It was also a fortified city, the most fortified probably of the seven cities. It was built into a cliff. It had a lower level and an upper level. And it was built on a cliff, and, and that's where the majority of the city lived, behind uh, a very fortified gate uh, with only one major access route into the city. So there was a sense of security, geographically, kind of culturally, and politically. Now, at one time, Sardis was a very prosperous and powerful city, but by the time of this letter, in the late first century, maybe around 95, 96 AD, its glory days were well in the past. This city was actually, um, interestingly, captured twice, once by Cyrus and the Persian army, once by Antiochus and the Roman military. And it was devastated by an earthquake in AD 17. And although it was rebuilt uh, later, uh, it never quite regained its former glory. And so what's happening here, again, we said every time that Jesus speaks a word to these churches, he speaks a word that they would have understand given their context, given, given what it meant to them. We need to understand what it meant to them before we go on to say, what does it mean for us? One scholar, theologian says this, R.H. Charles, like the city itself, the church had belied its early promise. Its religious history, like its civil, belonged to the past. Now, what's interesting about this uh, word from Jesus to Sardis is, it, it, again, it breaks the pattern that we've seen in the other, uh, the other letters, the other prophecies. Notice uh, here in Sardis, there's no affirmation. There's no commendation, no encouragement for this church from Jesus. So let's look uh, at the correction. Jesus goes right for, <laughs> uh, right for the correction. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. This is a church with a false reputation. This, this is what we would call inauthentic, an inauthentic church. When Jesus says that you, you have the reputation of being alive, that word reputation is going to show up several times in this passage, and it could also be translated name. You have a name for being alive. Alive. In other words, this church has what we call, I'm a marketing undergrad, what we call brand recognition. Everybody knows about this church. You have the reputation, you have a name for being alive. You have a reputation that goes far and wide in the region for being alive, for being active, for being an influencer. 
It was possibly a large church. It was a growing church, an attractive church. This is the church where uh, they had all the momentum, like the church in town where like everything's popping, everything's happening. There's a lot of talent in this church, a lot of resources, a lot of wealth likely in this church. This is the church that everyone wants wants to attend because there's good things going on in this church. They have a great brand. Now notice what's missing from this church. There's no persecution. There's no danger of heresies we've seen in the other churches, and thus, no trials and no suffering. And that is what Jesus wants to draw their attention to here. He says, you have this reputation, you have this image of being one thing, but the reality is something different. Reputation versus reality. You are dead, Jesus says. In the sight of my God, in the sight of the one whose opinion is the only opinion that really matters. From a human standpoint, you have this reputation. But in the sight of my God, you are dead. What's happening here is this church is out of touch with reality. And, And what you need to see is it's not so much that they're being deceptive. He doesn't call them liars. And this is actually the most dangerous position to be in. It's, it's they're deceiving themselves. They're self-deceived. They're self-deluded. They're blind. They, they've neglected their, their inner life. This is the church that's so focused on the external metrics of success that they've become blind to the deep inner realities of what is truly life, what is truly flourishing. This is a church that's crafted an image of the successful church. They, they built a brand a movement. They're having lots of impact by all observable metrics. If you were to just take this church and look at their engagement scores and look at their prosperity and the buildings they're building and the campaigns going out, everything looks amazing. Everything is awesome. From a human perspective, it looks impressive and looks like flourishing. But internally, from God's perspective, there's an emptiness. Success is often built on a platform of inner emptiness. All the energy going outward often is built on self-deception. There's a rottenness, Jesus says. There's a disease. As Soren Kierkegaard would say, there's a sickness leading to death. And that's what happens sometimes with performative spirituality. Performative image-driven spirituality. It values the outer form without the interior depth and the power and the grace that is the engine that drives forward a true and flourishing spirituality. Jesus warned about this a lot. All the prophets warned about this. Jesus said it in Matthew 23 to the religious leaders, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, Outwardly they appear beautiful, but within they're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous. You appear just. Same word. But within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul warns about this in Timothy as well. He warns of times that would come Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus, says there's going to come a time when people become lovers of themselves. They love pleasure 
more than they love the purposes of God. But they're going to come cloaked in a spirituality and a religiosity. And he says one of the key marks of that kind of spirituality is it has the appearance of godliness, but denies its power. He says, avoid those people. This is what I'll call, uh, so my kids are uh, big Harry Potter fans. And I know some of you uh, are Harry Potter fans. I, 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 I didn't even know, like, there was, like, a podcast a couple years ago. It's like a Harry Potter podcast. And some of you guys are into that and you nerd out on that. And that's awesome. Uh, my youngest daughter uh, is reading Harry Potter right now. And I was reminded of uh, the story, and I think it's the Sorcerer's Stone, when, uh, when we are first kind of introduced to uh, the one whose name we can't speak, Voldemort. And I, I would call this a Voldemort spirituality. Remember uh, when Harry goes out into the forest and, uh, and, he, and he's confronted with Voldemort and Voldemort's leaning over this uh, famous picture here from the, from the movie. Um, you can advance to that slide. Uh, the famous picture of the movie, you may not be able to see it. Do you have that picture? Uh, where the, he's hanging over that, well, just go on. Uh, he's, uh, Voldemort's leaning over, I, must, I may have left it out. He's leaning over the unicorn and he's, he's drinking unicorn blood. And, and they're asking like, why, does, why is he drinking the unicorn blood? And if you remember, uh, Voldemort essentially died when he tried to curse Harry and it rebounded and it, and it killed him. But he was kind of living this half-life. And one of the ways he was able to stay alive was by drinking unicorn blood, taking the most pure being uh, in the world, animal-wise, and, and drinking its blood. And they said, it, it comes at cost. You can drink the unicorn blood, and you can, unicorn blood and you can stay alive, but you live a cursed life. You live a half-life. It's, it's, it's this idea of being dead, but artificially sustaining ourselves off the life of others. You ever been in that place? I mean, this happens all the time. You see this all the time with Christians. They seem to be alive. We, 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 we seem to be alive. We go to church, we read the Bible, we pray, do the right things. But inside, there's this deadness. You ever felt like just that gnawing sense of deadness? Is this real? Is my faith real? Does this matter? What am I doing with my life? And we see this usually with people in their 30s and 40s. They have these massive explosions. Sometime in your mid-30s to mid-50s. The affair comes. The addiction begins to become public. We deconstruct our faith. And, and it's easy for us to look around at times like that and say, what happened? Like they were like this one day, and then all of a sudden there was this explosion. Like I don't understand. And what we miss is it wasn't an explosion, it was an erosion. Thousands and thousands of tiny erosions, and all of a sudden the ground gives way. The deadness goes public. See, one of the most dangerous realities for us in the church, and with religion in general, is that we can attach ourselves to the church and try to draw life and energy from it. The aesthetic vibe we want to be part of something cool, at least a certain demographic. The relationships, the social capital that church and religious communities bring, the power structures. I mean, I see this a lot with pastors. I see this in my own heart. We're drawn to ministry because we can have a platform and we can build a name for ourselves and get attached to the energy and the power of the conferences and the, the, the speaking and doing even what I'm doing right now, teaching in crowds, the activism we want to be a part of something that's having an impact. And we mistake being connected or associated with something life-giving with actually having that life planted deep into our soul. 
and we think we're alive because we're around life. But underneath that energy, if we're honest, is often lots of ugliness, lots of darkness, lots of compulsive behavior that we hide, lots of apathy. And I think that's the key issue here in Sardis. This is an apathetic, complacent church. They've settled for mediocrity. There's deadness, there's loneliness, there's insecurity and despair. But we don't pay attention to it because the forms look good. And we still post our stuff on Instagram and everybody's like, wow, they're amazing. Wish I could live like them. Isn't it funny how we all look at somebody else's Instagram and we're like, man, I wish I could have their life. So there's this invitation in the midst of this. Jesus says, you, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. Wake up. That, there, there's three invitations here from Jesus to the church at Sardis. Verse two. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Wake up, number one. This, this idea here, it's in the present tense. Keep on being watchful. Keep on being vigilant. Keep on waking up. He says, if you won't wake up, I will come like a thief. This is a specific historic reference to the city of Sardis, when they would have known oh so well. I mentioned earlier that two times in its history, the city fell. Now, what's interesting about the way that Sardis fell both times, it never fell by direct assault. You could not assault it. It was, on, it was so fortified and so protected by a massive wall and it's kind of geographic location up on a cliff. But while the city slept at night, trusting in the security of its gates, a small group of men scaled the wall, and they entered the city through a small access hole that it's said by myth and legend could have been guarded by a child. But they didn't take the time or didn't have the vigilance to guard it because they thought, who's ever going to scale the wall and get into the city? Both times, the armies entered the city through this access hole. They opened the gates of the city from within. And in the poetry and the wisdom literature of the day, Sardis became synonymous with pride and ease and comfort. When you fall asleep, you're vulnerable to attack. That's what it meant to be like a person in Sardis, to get complacent. See, the idea of falling asleep, Jesus is saying, it's not that you're not awake, it's you're sleepwalking to what's most important. You're, you're falling asleep to this inner felt sense of the goodness and the greatness and the mercy and the beauty of God in your life. The beauty of being a part of his kingdom. And here's the thing, you're still awake, but you're awake to the wrong things. It's truly like dreaming, right? When you're dreaming, it seems so real. The dream feels so real. And you're awake to what's not real, what's a fantasy. And you're asleep to actual reality. That's what he's talking about, to be awake to lesser realities, to be awake to fantasies, to be awake to things that don't ultimately matter or of lesser importance. That's what it means to fall asleep here. Now, I, we, we live in a city, this is so ironic, called Naptown. 
And I didn't grow up here, and I realized that's a pejorative that was that like other people talk about Indianapolis, and they usually don't mean that in a positive way. But it is kind of a sleepy city. Like the Midwest is kind of a sleepy context, especially for religion. It's so easy for us to fall asleep to the reality of God's presence and actually feel that in our bodies. I mean, if there is a message for the Midwest, it is the Church of Sardis. So easy living in a city like Indianapolis to just fall asleep. What, what is it that makes us fall asleep? I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. I, I think in a place like Indianapolis, one of the primary obstacles to having a really vital faith, some of our staff members and, and uh, some of my friends have lived in places like New York City, Boston, in very secular cities, and I say secular, like where it's felt, the marginalization is really felt in a profound way. And they're like, man, you just, you have a vigilance there that you don't have in a place like Indianapolis. It's assumed because it's a very kind of like religious context and there's all kinds of civil religion and we pray at sporting events and sometimes even in our workplaces and it's a very vague kind of thing, but it's like, that's just what you do. It's like saying your mealtime prayers. So there's this kind of performative, like image-driven religious thing happening, but the way we live our lives, there's actually a lot of practical atheism in a place like Indianapolis. Ronald Rollheiser, one of my favorite authors, says it like this. We live lives of quiet agnosticism. Our faith often feels like doubt. Our everyday consciousness contains little or no awareness of God. We tend to be atheistic in our imaginations and in our feelings, even as we profess faith, say the creed, go to church, and perhaps even do ministry. We have icons in our churches, but not in our hearts. This is not because we are hedonistic, pagan, bad, or materialistic, but because we live and move and breathe in a culture that no longer gives us the tools to create these icons. Our present cultural currency, certainly in the Western world, is not equipped to help us imagine or feel God's existence. The air we breathe is agnostic, even atheistic. That's the functional reality of, like, your workplace. That's the functional reality of your neighborhood. We live as if God's presence isn't real. And God becomes a slogan. God becomes a cause. God is all about kind of form and a brand. But there's no, like, living reality. That God doesn't speak to us. He doesn't come to us. He doesn't comfort us. He doesn't have a word for us. He doesn't challenge us. The practical atheism of a place like this. There's, there's also just the pace and the pressure of living in a city, right? If you live in a big city, there's massive expectations, right? Like this passage is all about what it means to have a name and a reputation. We come to the city. Many of us move from small town Indiana, move from the south, from Kentucky, to come to the city and make a name for ourselves, it's Babel, like reimagine, right? We come to the city to make a name for ourselves. And there are massive expectations and desires and longings that we have. And it creates this sort of restlessness in us in the city, right? So much, it, things are going so fast. There's so much pressure, so much stress. And it's weird because you're busy and yet you're bored all at the same time. That's what it's like to live in a city, busy and bored. Trying to keep ourselves busy so we forget about the boredom. And, and, and there's all kinds of anxiety in the city. Like, how am I going to raise my kids in the city? Four kids. What does that look like in Broderpool? I don't, I don't have any templates for that. Not many people my age that live in the city, 50% of us move out to the suburbs when they get to be my age. 
How do you raise kids in the city? What does it look like to be married and be faithful in the city? What does it look like to be single and be faithful in every way as a single person in the city? How am I going to pay the bills? It's so expensive to live in the city. I mean, these concerns, just, we fall asleep. We're just trying to survive. And the city ultimately creates this kind of preoccupation, right? We just get preoccupied. Again, we're not, he says, we're not bad. We're more busy. We're more preoccupied. There's a narcissism in the city that is really self-focused. We get self-preoccupied, self-development, trying to become our best selves, live our best life now, uh, maximize, optimize yourself, right? Like that's kind of the idea with narcissism. You just get so focused on yourself and being whole and healthy and free. And, and it's not bad, but like when that becomes the preoccupying force of your life and you're focused on prosperity and success, you get distracted and you fall asleep to God. This is just, as one author says, ecclesiastical sleepwalking. And it's so easy. When you're tired, when you're vulnerable, when you're busy. My, my wife and I um, are so different. Um, she's a late night person, and I'm an early morning person. And so um, over the years, I've gotten in quite a bit of trouble for falling asleep on her because she likes to talk at night in bed, which is like the worst thing for me, right? Like I, if I'm in bed, that's my body's cue. I'm one of those people I can fall asleep in 30 seconds. And so I have to be really careful and be vigilant about if I want to have a conversation with my wife, it has to be in a certain kind of way. And it's definitely not laying down in bed because I'm going to fall asleep. No meaningful conversation happening for me after like eight o'clock. If you come to my house and you sit in my living room, I will likely fall asleep on you in my living room if it's past nine o'clock. Jesus says, wake up. It's so easy to fall asleep, to stay asleep. This is a call to vigilance that acknowledges like Sardis, we have vulnerabilities. Be careful that you don't allow the enemy to come in through the access hole and defeat you from the inside out. It's so easy. Stay awake. Your assumption as a follower of Jesus needs to be that you are always either falling asleep or waking up from sleep. And the question is, where are you right now? We assume that we're not asleep. We assume we're awake. We're like Bruce Willis in the sixth sense until the boy at the end, spoiler, 20 years later says, I see dead people. And Bruce has this moment of realizing he's dead but he thinks he's alive. YouTube it later for everybody under 35. The assumption needs to be, though, that we're always falling asleep. Jesus was always talking about this vigilance. Always. I'll just give you one example. He says in Matthew 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Jesus says, I'm coming. And if you don't wake up, I'm going to bring discipline. I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your influence. I'm going to expose the deadness inside of you. Second thing he says quickly here is strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. 
The imagery here is of a body that's atrophied to the point of near death. This, this is a call for rehabilitation, targeted rehabilitation. I don't know if you've ever uh, gone through rehab of any sort, whether it's addiction, 12-step programs, or uh, I think of when high, in high school, I played uh, high school basketball, and I developed back spasms really badly to the point where it was so debilitating, I couldn't stand up. And so I was sent to the University of Louisville's uh, sports medicine clinic, and they did what's called electrotherapy. It's kind of a controversial therapy, actually, the, with mixed results. But they essentially attach... Uh, electrical current to your back, and they start to stimulate the muscle and the tissue to slowly begin to rebuild what remains in, the, in your weakened state. And it was like, as like an athlete, I'm like, isn't there more like I should be doing? Like, I want like something like intense and hardcore, not like stimulate my, lay on a thing, and we're going to put this weird gel on you, and it's really cold, and we're just going to stimulate your back. Then what you're going to do is you're going to go to practice, and you're not going to practice. You're going to stretch, and you're going to go just like this. You're going to stretch that back. You're going to do this. You're going to turn. And it was all these really frustrating small habits that is like somebody who's like really impatient and, and worried about efficiency. I'm like, this is not efficient. This is not working. Speed it up a little bit. That's the idea here. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. He's talking about the power of consistency. Small things done consistently over long periods of time in the presence of God yield extraordinary results. And and what's at stake, he says, in, in strengthening what remains, if we will strengthen the part of us that remains, don't swing for the fences. Take what you have. Work with what you have and start with what you have. Surrender it to God. Because what's at stake, he says, is I've not found your works complete. That, that's the thing. There's a sense of Jesus saying, this word completion is the word for fullness, plerao in the Greek, fullness. I have not found your works complete. In other words, God is saying to them, Jesus is saying to this complacent church, I have more for you. I have a vision for your life and you are not fulfilling it. You're not done. Quit looking to the past and remembering all the things that happened back there. Look to the future and see, I have a call on your life. Don't settle for the superficial. Don't settle for apathy and mediocrity. Don't be status quo. Go deeper. Dream bigger. Then he finally says, remember what you've received. Keep it and repent. Now, there's a lot that can be said here, and, and I didn't realize this before studying this passage, but this is really a reference to the Holy Spirit. You could actually say the same thing here that Paul says in Ephesians 5. Go on being filled with the Spirit. Remembering what we receive, the idea of receiving in the Bible, to receive something, the primary uh, thing that we receive as Christians, the primary person we receive as Christians is the Holy Spirit. That's why you see throughout the Bible, this, uh, throughout the New Testament, Jesus says, receive the Spirit. That's why we see here this vision of Christ in, in the early part of the chapter I skipped this on purpose earlier, I'm coming back. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? Remember, this vision of Christ is meant to speak to this church where they're at with what they need. The words of him, Jesus, who is the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars represent the angels. You know what the seven spirits represent in the book of Revelation? The fullness of the Holy Spirit. Most people actually see in here a reference back to Isaiah chapter 11, 
And the, the idea of seven, the idea of completeness, is the complete presence of the Holy Spirit, the energizing manifestations of the Spirit of God in the church. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. This is what Isaiah writes to a very similar people struggling with apathy and complacency. He says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. There's a prophecy about Jesus. But remember, what belongs to Jesus now as Christians belongs to us. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are the sevenfold ministries of the spirit. What we need when we're dying, what we need when we're asleep is we need to be brought alive by the power of the spirit. We need to receive again a fresh wind of the spirit. We need the wisdom of the spirit. We need the understanding of the Holy Spirit. We need the counsel of the Spirit. We need the might, the power, the authority of the Holy Spirit. We need the knowledge of the Spirit to give us a fear and awe and wonder of God in the midst of our cultural moment. That, he says, is what you need more than anything else. This is an invitation to come alive by the power of the Spirit. It's a reminder that without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, we will have no power for the Christian life. It is the Holy Spirit that leads us to repent. It is God's kindness that leads us to wake up. And apart from the power of God and the presence of God and the Spirit in the church, just like Ezekiel 37, dry bones don't work. They atrophy and they die. So let me just close with maybe like a mental imagery for us, like, and kind of tie this together. This is a call to open ourselves to the fire of the Spirit in the church, right? There's nothing wrong with form and structure, worship, Bible study, prayer. Like, those are all good things. But if they're not set on fire by the Spirit, they bring about no life. They actually contribute to more death. And they contribute to blindness because we go through the motions thinking we're alive and we're actually dead. So this is a call, I think, to the church to build a bonfire with the Holy Spirit. Like we're about to enter into bonfire season here over the next few weeks before it gets really hot. And we're gonna get back outside with our neighbors and our friends and we're gonna sit around the warmth of that fire and we are going to come back to life as a community. Think about what's happening here and think about what we talked about with, with the alarm clock moment. A, a good fire starts with ignition. It must have ignition. If your ignition's broken, you cannot have a fire. So there's a spark that often functions as a wake-up call. It could be small, it could be big, right? But it's gonna grab our attention. This happens, I believe, every single day. This might be for you, your alarm clock moment right now. Being here in this service, worshiping, hearing this word might be the spark, the nudge that the Holy Spirit brings. Because the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians, wants, to set, wants us to have all the fullness of God. He wants us to have more. That's why Paul prays, I, play, I pray that you'd be filled with the fullness of the Spirit, that you wouldn't settle. The question is, are we listening? Are we paying attention to the nudge, to the wake-up call? Yeah, you lost your job, but what if that was the Spirit's wake-up call for you? Yeah, you stopped dating this person. They walked away from you. But could that be the Spirit's wake-up call for you? Yeah, we've all lived through a massive pandemic this last year that is a huge wake-up call. But maybe that wake-up call, maybe that 
what we've experienced is the alarm clock. There was a brilliant article in the New York Times this week. I encourage you to read the whole thing. It was called The Empty Religions of Instagram. And, and this girl who's not a Christian talks about how the pandemic has completely reoriented her to a, a kind of reality that she was not aware of before the pandemic. Lee Stein is her name. And it's a fascinating look at Instagram culture, what she calls left-wing progressivism, which is her kind of tribe. But she closes by, by saying this, we're all looking for guidance in the wrong places. She said we're looking to the, uh, what she calls like the priestesses of Instagram, all the, uh, what she's talking about, the female influencers that are doling out advice on life. Many of us maybe follow these influencers. She says, instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, maybe they're actually distracting us from them. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. She says, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. (laughs) I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. Left-wing secular millennials may follow politics devoutly, but the women we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? The whole economy of Instagram is based on our thinking about ourselves, posting about ourselves, working on ourselves. There is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. Brilliant. So there's the spark. And then a spark needs kindling, right? The spark needs kindling. And this is where we give attention to the small, consistent practices and habits. We strengthen our inner life through practices of reflection and repentance and thanksgiving and praise and worship. We need these practices, but we lay them out before the Holy Spirit. And we say, would you bring this to life? Would you take this kindling and just engulf it with flame? And in our weakness, as we offer those things up five minutes a day, two minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, we do that consistently day in and day out. Eventually, a fire starts. God loves to enter into that kind of space of vulnerability and weakness with us. And eventually, before we know it, our entire lives are on fire, and we have a bonfire. We have a fresh wind of the Spirit's presence and power. And, and, And let me just say this, and I'm done. When we experience the Spirit's power like that, we don't need to make a name for ourselves. We don't need to get concerned about what other people think of us. That's, that's the beauty of the promise at the end. You will walk with me in relationship. This is the promise from the end of Revelation. You will walk with me. You will be worthy and have white robes. I will make you worthy. There'll be no more guilt, no more shame for you. You will be acknowledged and included. I will confess your name before God, before the Father, before the angels. Jesus, I can imagine this, walking into the city of God, Jesus as your guide. And he brings you before the throne of God and says, this one belongs to me. No shame, no guilt. That, my friends, is the only praise, the only affirmation, the only reputation that you need. 
That's what we're praying that the Spirit of God would do in us, would just so orient us to that vision that we don't need the praise, we don't need the commendation, we don't need the inclusion, we don't need the acknowledgement, we don't need the preoccupation of anything else. But we know that God sees us, God knows us, and God welcomes us with love. Let's put our stuff aside, and let's just pray for the Holy Spirit to do that work in us today. I don't know where you walk in finding yourselves today. Maybe you've been so busy or try to keep yourself so busy to keep the sense of deadness at bay. But I want to invite you to wake up today by the power of the Holy Spirit. For some of you, that may mean maybe the pandemic has cracked open something in you. This last year's cracked open something and you. Just name that and say, yeah, I long for more. I long to be reconciled to God. I long to be restored to community. I long for the fullness that God has for me. And maybe it's just trusting in Jesus for the first time. Maybe it's, no, man, I'm a Christian, but I've been asleep. And if I'm honest, I'm sleepwalking through life. There's this automatic, automaticity, this automatic kind of sleepwalking that I'm doing through life. And I'm not awake to the goodness of God. I don't feel his presence in my life. You just pray, Holy Spirit, come, make me alive. Build a bonfire in my heart and my soul that will not only set me on fire, but set my roommates on fire, my campus on fire, my family on fire, this community on fire. We need this. We need each other. We need the Spirit to do this in us. Let's take a moment to confess to God. Confess your longings, your desires. And let's just pray, come Holy Spirit. Do this work in us.